I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We are a new show breaking down the anime news, views, and shows you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to bring something like this to life. Yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to pretend (laughs) that I don't right now. Hold it in. And our current faves. Luffy must have his due. (laughs) Tune in every week for the latest anime updates and possibly a few debates. Oof. I remember, what was that? (laughs) Say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. You can listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Previously on the service. Yeah, there's one very strong club, the Five Eyes, that's jealously guarded. There is a sort of feeling that we have to earn our stripes, if you know what I mean. New Zealand was also seen as, some call it, the weaker link of the Western world. I mean, they find that, you know, the codes and they can crack Warsaw Pact communications. So, I mean, that, that would be a treasure trove. When you say that you have a dim recollection that there was an operation involving the Czechoslovakian embassy, do you recall it being a successful operation? <laughs> no, you're pressing me on this one, Guy, and harder than, uh, uh, than I can go. I've really said all I can on this one. We'll, we'll, we'll turn off the recording devices. Yeah. The operation was easy to understand, but hard to pull off, and the details around what happened that night in 1986 are still a tightly held secret. In an effort to crack Warsaw Pact codes, the SIS in New Zealand teamed up with Britain's MI6. They would break into the Czechoslovakian embassy in the Wellington suburb of Wadestown, grab the codebook from the safe, photograph it, and put it back, all without being detected. At least... That was the plan. The plan John's stepdad told him about 20-odd years later. From RNZ and Bird of Paradise Productions, this is The Service. The Soviet Union was extremely active in New Zealand. A five-part podcast about New Zealand's SIS All of us lived in the shadows all that time, you know, in the wilderness of mirrors. And its role in the Cold War. I do recall very much the heated times of the nuclear arms race. I'm Guy Nespina. And I'm John Daniel, my mum and my stepdad were SIS officers. With God's help, I'm trying to find out about some of the things they did for their country. This mission was as big as it got for New Zealand's intelligence agencies, breaking the Vienna Convention, risking political scandal, all at the height of the Cold War. The whole point of this series has been to explain what led to this one night in Wadestown, Wellington. The politics, the spycraft, the alliances. And it's been about getting to the truth of a story that's been gnawing away at me for years. Because the people involved in that raid came through our house. My stepdad Jim was part of the team. Our mission over the past year has been to get to the bottom of it all. Not that we've had much help. The SIS have refused to confirm or deny whether the operation took place at all. MI6 haven't even responded to an approach through a channel suggested by the SIS. But we have been talking to the SIS officer who headed the operation from the New Zealand end. We can't use his real name, so we're calling him Ben. He was my stepfather Jim's boss at the time, although I've never met him. 
I called him right at the start of putting this story together. Initially, he seemed happy enough to talk on the record, but after discussing it with the service, he decided not to do an interview. Still, we couldn't leave it at that. So after months of trying to get confirmation from all these different sources, I rang him again. Oh, hi. Hey, um, yeah, thank you for taking the call. Um, it's been a few months now, but I was wondering if... I'd said I'd come back to him for a final confirmation and to see whether he'd tell me his version of what happened that night. I guess I'm just looking, you know, we've put together some information, um, speaking to various people, and I just wanted to kind of confirm it with, with you. Um, as far as I can tell, in terms of actual direct knowledge in New Zealand of the operation, um, there were seven people who were were directly aware of it, um, and five of them aren't with us anymore. And so there really isn't much... Um, but I don't have many places to go, and as you know, passed recently, uh, there's kind of less and less um, opportunity to talk to people, uh, and the story's kind of going to get buried in the archives, um, and I think that's a bit of a shame. But I really can't think how much I could add to that, really, because my home, I think it's better that these things lie, I mean, there's no, to my mind, anyway. Ben doesn't want to say anything at this point, so we've come up with a strategy, a way to confirm what we already have from other sources. Okay. Well, would you answer... Okay, in fact, don't answer these questions. Don't say anything. I'm just going to read out a list of statements, a list of things um, that we know already from different people, and you hang up if we get something wrong. Would you, do you, do you see what I mean? So you wouldn't have to say anything at all. Um, and I'm just gonna read out kind of what I already know. And the moment you've hung up, then I know that we've got it wrong. Okay, well, Okay, great. So in the mid 1980s, the, the service mounted an operator. We'll come back to Ben, but first, let's have a look at the prize that the SIS was actually after, the codes used to encrypt those communications between the Warsaw Pact countries. Now, exactly how codes work in intelligence is very complex, even to Bruce Ferguson, former head of the GCSB. One of my earliest briefings was in the area in GCSB, which is basically code-breaking, understanding uh, the rationale of how to break codes, etc., and there were probably half a dozen uh, young men and women in briefing me, and they all had doctorates in mathematics of varying uh, particular specialties. And they gave the standard thing you do to a boss, uh, boss, if you have any questions during the briefing, don't hesitate to ask. Well, it had only been going about a minute, and one of these guys, the first guy up, kept on talking about algorithms. So I put my hand up and I said, can you tell me what an algorithm is? And the whole room just laughed. But I never got the answer. <laughs> What sort of people do you hire at the GCSB to, to, to crack codes? What sort of skills do they have? Normally, men and women with doctorates in mathematics who know what algorithms are, <laughs> basically. Seriously, they're puzzle solvers, right? Yeah, they're puzzle solvers. They're puzzle solvers. And I, <clears throat> during my term as a director, I spent some time in the United States and I was taken to their code-breaking school uh, as a visit. And I was immediately impressed, uh, particularly at the 10-minute morning tea period. I went to their cafeteria, and these were you know, the world leaders in code-breaking. And um, they, were, you know, they were totally um, introverted people. Well, they all sit and look at their shoes, um, drinking their own coffee. But in this room, a lot were looking at crosswords in front of them. And I said to Keith Alexander, who was the head of NSA at that time, I said, that's right, do they do crosswords? And he said, well, they do. They pick the most difficult crosswords uh, that are published these days, and then they blot out half the clues. 
They can either have their cross clues or the down clues, but they're not allowed both. And their aim is to finish that crossword within the morning tea break. <laughs> and they do. <laughs> uh, so that's the sort of people you're dealing with. If you have the code books, things are a bit more straightforward, but it doesn't mean you suddenly have access to everything all the time. Codes were regularly changed. Let's go back to Gerald Hensley and the Czech Embassy raid. As I understand it, the action was to somehow steal Warsaw Pact codes. That was the dream of everybody. It was extremely difficult uh, by then to crack codes. We all think of Bletchley Park and the German codes, which were difficult enough to crack. But uh, after McLean, Donald McLean defected and so on, uh, and told the Russians that we had been uh, reading their codes, they moved up to a higher grade and it became very difficult. Just a note, Donald McLean was one of the Cambridge Five, aspiring that operated at the heart of the British establishment, either side of the Second World War. You could, with luck, if the operator repeated a message foolishly in the same code, there are various technical ways in which occasionally you could break a message, but uh, it was not easy. That, of course, might only give you what was being the code of that week. Uh, it was a constant chasing your tail, and uh, I think uh, from then on became increasingly difficult, unless, of course, you could get the books. And did they get the books? That I no recollection of. No recollection of at all? No, none at all. Just picking up on that reference to Bletchley Park, that's the British code-breaking installation that ran during World War II in such secrecy that details of it only emerged in the 1970s. They still relied on captured code books and Enigma machines to get insights into the operating system of codes. So a code book gave you a foot in the door, but you'd still have to force it open with a hell of a lot of work. And that's why you have the NSA and the GCSB and GCHQ and all these people doing cryptic crosswords with half the clues. Was there a Cold War equivalent of Bletchley Park? Yeah, loosely. It was known as Venona. It was working on Soviet codes, and again, it was begun during World War II, this time by the Americans. It ran until 1980, and again, the information was kept incredibly secret. Apparently, even President Truman was denied direct knowledge of it. So when did the world actually find out about this phenomena? Well, there are a few books that referred to it in the 1980s. You might remember the British government tried to shut down one of them. Spy Spy catcher, yeah. The former MI5 agent, uh, Peter Wright, I think it was, But it wasn't officially acknowledged until 1995 when an American Senate committee said it was getting ridiculous that people should know more about US history because of the KGB archives rather than their own government. So in both these cases, we've got top-secret operations which were instrumental, really, to world history. No one knew anything about them for decades, and when they finally came to light, we had to rewrite the history books. New Zealand has its own secret that it's kept for 35 years. The Czech Embassy raid for Warsaw Pact codes. And according to Paul Buchanan, there may still be good reasons to keep it under wraps. I do agree with the SIS that uh, this information should be withheld if there are any risks. You know, they're assuming there's risks. But let's say, for example, if this is revealed, and let's say that uh, an individual within the embassy was the source of the tip-off, that individual, if alive, or his or her family, if living in the Czech Republic, uh, or, or even living here, uh, might find themselves at some risk. You know, countries may change, uh, but the intelligence community has a very long memory about treason. And the Russians play, they play hardball. I mean, they, you know, they will, I'd say they're second only to the Israelis 
and having memories where they will hunt you down uh, years after the fact because of some damage you may have done to them. Is that why the SIS want to keep this secret? Uh, I think they're less worried about their own agents and more worried about the contacts that led them to the embassy in the first place. As Paul Buchanan says, spies tend to have long memories. Remember the 2018 attack on Russian double agent Sergei Skripal and his daughter Yulia in England? This is being treated as a major incident involving attempted murder by administration of a nerve agent. Former Russian spy Sergei Skripal and his daughter, now both critically ill, were deliberately poisoned by a nerve agent, targeted specifically, according to police. The government has concluded that it is highly likely that Russia was responsible for the act against Sergei and Yulia Skripal. In other words, a growing list of people this Kremlin sees as opponents, and long before the poisoning of the Skripals in Britain, who have met painful and untimely deaths. Clearly, the practice of killing its enemies abroad has survived the collapse of the Soviet Union. Now, we should say here that we've discussed this with the SIS on multiple occasions. John had a phone call, didn't you? Then a personal meeting with the SIS in their Wellington HQ, in their office. You laid out what you knew. Yeah, and then you came with me and we talked face-to-face with their lawyer and the comms director. Yep, so we've had, since then, multiple emails, phone exchanges, phone calls. They have never once, and this is the important point, suggested that anyone would be put in any danger by us revealing the raid, and they have never once denied that it happened. Yeah, the only thing that we got from the SOS that might hint at the operation itself came after the request I made for my file. In a letter signed by Director General Rebecca Kitteridge, the SIS said that I had no file, but there were two references to me in my stepfather Jim's file. One is from his death notice from 2005. That doesn't tell us much. But the other comes from a vetting report on Jim, dated September the 24th, 1986. And so we think maybe that this points to the time that that embassy raid took place. Yeah, that's when MI6 were using our home as a safe house, around that time. The other possibility is that the SIS were vetting him to look after Oleg Gordievsky. Remember, he was the KGB defector who'd come out from Britain and was being chaperoned by my stepdad, Jim. While we were trying to piece all this together, we finally got some luck. A surprise detail dropped in an interview with the former SIS officer, Kit Bennett. An operation between NZSIS and MI6 on the Czechoslovakian embassy in an attempt to steal Warsaw Pact codes. Was that an operation that you knew about? Uh, I think it came after my time. I think it came after my time. You would have left the service by then because this is the mid-80s. Yeah, I... I was involved in, an, in, a, in another role. I was on, on exchange to another organisation at that time, so I was not engaged in that. That isn't strictly true. I did do a little bit of the lead-up work to that, but, but really I know nothing about that. What can you tell us about the lead-up work? What, what would that look like? Uh, no. The, the lead-up lead work was, yes, the sorts of things that you would expect a, uh, an intelligence service to do, um, when it's trying to get close to um, to intelligence officers and hard information. So, was there engagement with uh, Czech embassy people? Yes, yes. As part of that operation? Yes. So in the early days of that? Yes. So that would involve trying to get some, I guess, due diligence or intelligence as a way in to prepare the ground. Almost every intelligence operation really involves face-to-face contact, involves, you know, belly-to-belly. Absolutely. But why were you interested in the Czechs? Because, of course, they were um, a a Warsaw Pact 
country and close confidence of the Soviets for the same reason that the Soviets would be interested in us as opposed to America. It's exactly the same sort of reason. And was trying to get the Warsaw Pact codes, how important would that have been? That would have been, that would have been a mag- magnificent coup. That's exactly what we try to do. It's exactly what happened in World War II with, with Enigma. So that's one of the, it's just a hearty annual. So if we could, could have got their codes, I mean, I'm, I'm only learning about this now, but if, having, if we got their codes, imagine how useful that would be. We got more than we bargained for there. We'd had no idea that Kip was involved in the early stages of the operation. And he says he had no idea why he was doing it. Because he only heard about the raid from us but he was able to make sense of his role in hindsight. And that seems to be the way these things work in silos on a need-to-know basis. Talking about the Czech raid troubles him, so we move away from it, but it's too important to be left hanging, so we return to it near the end of our 90-minute interview. In terms of that Czech operation, and I know, I see you've scribbled it down there on, mm. on your paper, um, I'm used to reading things upside down too. <laughs> you read my book, yes. Why would they keep that secret now? And this isn't a funny backdoor in to try to get you to say something you didn't want to say, and you'd be too good for that anyway. <laughs> why would they, Why would they want to keep that secret today when the Soviet Union or the USSR doesn't exist and, and, and Czech, Czechoslovakia doesn't, doesn't exist, exist now any, either? What do you reckon? Well, I think there'd be a couple of reasons. First of all, um, the Czech Republic and Slovakia are now Western allies, really, and and so they're good guys. So why would we stir the pot? Why would we belt the, the, the hornet's nest? And the other thing is that in amongst there, there is modus operandi that the service does not want to talk about. As I said, I was not involved in this, so I don't, so I can't tell you what the modus operandi is. But also, it's not so much that that we did it or what we were trying to do because people would expect us to try to do that. But how we went about it, uh, that it, it's often the how that's the, the problem. So clandestine entry into embassies, was that what the SIS did? Oh, I would have no comment at all to make on that. If, for example, something like that was done, um, then obviously no one would want to talk about that. It's a breach of, you know, you can't be doing that sort of thing. So if anyone did that, they certainly are not going to admit it. Is that right? Oh, yes. Uh, uh, it's the Vienna Convention, I think, and it would, be a, it would be a really serious diplomatic breach of that. So you don't want to be caught doing... There's, there's naughty things you can be caught doing. That's not one of them. I, you know, I wouldn't want to be facing questions after that. So I'm suspecting that that... I'm not saying that's what happened in that case, but things like that are a problem. So breaking into an embassy? On the face of it, it's an egregious breach of the Vienna Convention on Diplomatic Relations. It says in Article 22, Part 1, the premises of the mission shall be inviolable. The agents of the receiving state may not enter them, except with the consent of the head of the mission. In fact, under the convention, it's the host country's duty to protect the embassy from intrusion. You're not even allowed to open the mail or the diplomatic bag, let alone go in in the dead of night, climb through a window and crack a safe. But here's the surprising thing. Helen Clark, of the left, sceptical of the SIS and wary of the Five Eyes Pact, she backs the mission. She thinks it was justified. Context is everything, and one would need to look at the very fine print of the Vienna Convention uh, to see if there is any out clause uh, with respect to a country's interpretation of its national security interests. And how do you think we should assess that on uh, all these years later? Justified? Well, it might seem strange coming from me, but I think it probably was, it, because I do recall very much the heated times of the nuclear arms race, uh, before there was any serious detente and before the collapse of the Soviet Union. So I think that you know, New Zealand was very conscious that while it, it would n- not itself be likely to be the target of a, of a nuclear strike... Uh, the world that it interacted with in the Northern Hemisphere, uh, parts of that certainly would be, and that had implications. So I would think that 
it was probably wheeled up to a prime minister in that context that something very useful could be possibly be found. And he said, well, give it a go. That's my judgment. I suppose with embassies, what we we presume that they're bugged. I mean, you must have operated on that on that basis, would you not, or advised not, others? Oh, ab- absolutely. You would operate on the basis that uh, you uh, were under surveillance of some kind in, a, in an embassy. Uh, and, of course, embassies you know, get advice on how to protect uh, themselves, uh, both you know, physical security and cyber security, but how good it is, who knows? Is the level of intrusion different when you're actually gaining entry to the premises? Is it different from bugging? There's plenty of opportunities, I would think, for that to go desperately wrong. It's high stakes, I guess. Isn't <laughs> it's it? high stakes. It's a bit different from you know cyber warfare done from the done from the desk or you know through the through the phone system. It might seem strange that a stickler for international law and indeed someone who nearly reached the top of the United Nations would be happy to bend the Vienna Convention. But as Paul Buchanan puts it, intelligence agencies don't operate in a world of black and white. Intelligence services operate in the grey. And you know that going in, that you operate in the grey. And within the grey, you make determinations about black and white. And so, although the Vienna Convention is written in black and white terms, I don't think any intelligence agency that has an opportunity like this presented before it would refuse to take that opportunity, uh, particularly given the stakes involved. So I think we always need to think that in the intel business, you know, it's all about shades of gray. And so long as you're working on the white side of gray, uh, it's all good. All good. Great, even, if you could get your hands on the treasure. Here's Bruce Ferguson. If one could get hold of the Warsaw Pact codes and keep hold of the fact, keep it entirely secret that you actually had those codes, then that would inevitably lead you on to know what, in military terms, or even intelligence terms, but particularly military, what the Warsaw Pact countries were up to if they are manoeuvring major military um, organisations around Eastern Europe, then you'd probably know why they're doing that. Were they just sabre-rattling? Or were they looking to do something like taking back the Crimea? Um, So you'd have all that information at hand and you could react to it. But the reacting to it would have to be done extremely sensitively because any reaction that they think, well, how did they know that, Uh, would change the code immediately. So the codes were the ultimate prize, but what would that allow you to do? What was the lock you were trying to pick? Remember, as Helen Clark says, these days all embassies work under the premise that they're under surveillance of some kind. So even basic messages are coded, and it was the same during the Cold War. Remember Russian diplomat Ruben Azizian? He took us through how it works, how messages were sent with encryption to make sure the West couldn't tell what they were doing. So every embassy had a cipher clerk or a communications officer. Every morning, uh, the communication officer would receive cables from Moscow. He would uh, decode that, handwrite at that time. It was handwritten, so communication officer had to have good uh, handwriting skills. Then the decoded messages were distributed on a need-to-know basis. So if I'm number two, I probably read most of it. So I walk into the communication room and there are cables from Moscow um, in Russian, um, written manually, decoded. You read that uh, and then you write your own also in Russian manually and give it to the communication officer and he ciphers whatever codes, uh, puts the codes, sends away. My job is to read and to write. Now the rest um, is the communication officer's job. Anything can be a code. The first word of every second line of Shakespeare's sonnets, whatever the cipher clerk is working with. But you have to know what the key is, and often that meant a code book to decipher it. I have no doubt that um, the adversaries wanted to break each other's codes, uh, because that's the only way you get to the reliable information. 
Do you know whether the West was successful in breaking Warsaw Pact codes? Um, no, I'm trying to think if that was... Uh, well, uh, I, being in the embassy, never heard of, like, oh, trouble, uh, <laughs> we have to <laughs> completely switch, and uh, our, uh, our our cables are being uh, read and penetrated, by the way. There was never such panic or hysteria from, as from my 20 years when I worked in the embassies. Remember, this was a joint operation with the British External Intelligence Service. MI6 expert Rory Cormack agrees there's no evidence that the Warsaw Pact codes were cracked, but that's not to say it didn't happen. If they'd broken the code, they would keep it secret for a for as long as they could um, feasibly get away with it. We saw it in World War II where they kept that uh, secret for as long as possible, partly because various other countries were still using the Enigma machine and Britain was still using their traffic, uh, still was still intercepting their traffic. So Britain did not want to let on that it had, it had had this success. There are only a handful of people with direct knowledge of the Czech embassy raid. One of them is Gerald Hensley, intelligence czar, historian and former chief of staff to prime ministers. I remember it dimly, but those, that operational side was not my business to uh, inquire into unless, of course, it went wrong. Um, so I just remember, I remember the occasion, but I couldn't remember any detail about it, except the obvious point, which was that the Russians, uh, more often than not, used the Czechs uh, as a cover for their uh, activities. Uh, they also used the Bulgarians and so on, but for some reason, the Czechs were a particular favourite of the Russians for um, uh, getting their assistance in operations in Western countries. So it wasn't a surprise. What do you remember about that operation? Pretty much all I've told you, I'm sorry to say. <laughs> it was a long time ago and things came and went. And as I say, it was not my job. My job was coordination not prowling around, uh, putting my fingers into people's actual day-to-day job. So when you say that you have a dim recollection that there was an operation involving the Czechoslovakian embassy, do you recall it being a successful operation? (laughs) No. You're pressing me on this one, Guy, and harder than than I can go. I've really said all I can on this one. John, I have to go to you. Sure. If, we, we, we should, we'll, we'll turn off the recording devices. Yeah. And then we can come back. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so really what I wanted to ask you was, sure. I haven't talked to the service about this for years right. and years. This raid was proving to be a sensitive subject. We stopped the recording for a minute while Gerald Hensley decided just how far he could go. Eventually, he would give us new information about the raid, but we had to wait months for that. During his first interview in July of 2019, he told us a raid like that would have to be signed off at the top. Would a Prime Minister sign off on an operation of that type? Absolutely. Uh, No question at all. Uh, Any sensitive operation... Uh, the Prime Minister's approval had to be got. I would have thought in a sort of constitutional sense, but in the practical sense, if it went wrong, the political storm might uh, you know, be very large. And he had to or she would have to know that the, the risk was there and decide that the risk was acceptable. Because what seems an acceptable risk to his advisers might to the Prime Minister seem definitely a no-no. So yes, always signed off on anything at all sensitive. Either signed off literally or briefed and uh, didn't disagree. And joint operations, how common would they be? Did New Zealand do joint operations with MI6 as far as you're aware? We did not have an external intelligence service. Uh, We had thought about it from time to time, but for a small country, uh, it was A, extremely expensive for what you got back from it, and B, of course, more likely to involve you in political difficulties than than not. And so we did, uh, uh, at least in those days, uh, uh, decided against it. Uh, On joint operations, again, um, 
I think we're getting into operational detail that's outside my, my brief. These things cast a very long shadow, don't they? Yes, they do. Um, because they're sensitive, because they involve or can involve other countries and um, fashions and how people regard these things swing and change and what might have seemed a perfectly sensible and straightforward operation uh, 30 years later might have seemed like an outrageous invasion of somebody else's privacy. So there is a long shadow in these. We'll leave Gerald Hensley in his long shadow for now, sitting under his great wall of books in Wairarapa. But you'll hear more from him later. Let's go back to Rory Cormack, the British academic expert on MI6. How would the British decision-making process around a raid on the Czechoslovakian embassy have worked? This operation automatically becomes politically sensitive. It becomes more of a high-risk operation because if the Soviets or the Czechoslovakians had found out and had publicised or exposed it, then um, there would have been political uh, recriminations, political fallout for um, Britain and for New Zealand. And therefore... Uh, it was important that this kind of activity got signed off through the uh, appropriate channels. And um, in New Zealand, that's obviously the Prime Minister. And in the UK, I would assume that the Foreign Secretary, if not the Prime Minister, had uh, had signed off on it. I wonder whether we could find uh, records of that. Would records be kept on that sort of thing? And, and what is the appetite on releasing them in, in the UK? Um, good luck is <laughs> the, uh, the, the honest answer. Uh, MI6 records are uh, exempt from release. So the way we have to try and get around it as historians is to look at departments who would have dealt with MI6 and see if there's any fragments or snippets coming through those those files instead. Uh, we can there are a few MI6 documents knocking around from the late 1940s, for example. But as soon as we start to get um, into the height of the Cold War, they they very quickly dry up. So there will be a record if it was indeed signed off by the Foreign Secretary. I'm sure there'll be a record somewhere. Um, but we're going to be waiting a very 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 long time indeed to see it. So why target the Czech embassy when really the main adversary was Russia? Why not try and steal the codes from the Russian embassy? Would that have been a better bet? Let's go back to Azizian again. He was number two at the Russian embassy in Messines Road, Korori, from 1991. So he knew the building. I can't think how, say, I'm thinking about Soviet embassy. How do you break into Soviet embassy? Well, you have the gates, you have the doors, and uh, you have usually people, the reception and the duty officers. So um, I, I, we didn't have those cameras at the time, I think. We we're just installing some new cameras. But uh, to penetrate in a well-established embassy, I can't imagine anyone physically getting into uh, yeah, I, I can't think of anything. But while the Soviet embassy in Karori was something of a fortress, the Czech embassy in Wadestown, well, that was just a normal suburban house. There were no big gates and no special security measures. It seems like the Czechs were a softer option, in the same way that the Russians thought New Zealand was a weak link in Five Eyes. And it's the Czech angle we want to nail down. Do they know anything about a raid on their Wellington embassy? And how do they feel about New Zealand and Britain breaking the Vienna Convention? Hi, Robert. How are you doing over there? Uh, hi. Hi, Tim. I'm fine. Thank you. How are you? I'm, I'm well. Our producer, Tim Watkin, put in a call to Robert Breston, editor of the investigative website Klidasip, which translates into English as Watchdog. Really good to hear you again. Yeah, nice to hear you too. Ironically, Tim and Robert met on a journalism program in the US, a program sponsored by the US State Department. So we asked you to do some digging into what Czechoslovakia, as the country was then, knew about all this. Who did you talk to and, and what have you found? Okay, I, uh, I spoke with several uh, former and current Czech diplomats, uh, also with current Czech ambassador to Australia and New Zealand, Mr. Dup. I was also in the archive of Ministry of Foreign Affairs uh, in Prague, and I spoke with historians from that archive. From what you learned talking to these people, how did Czechoslovakia work codes 
back in those days? I think it's important to uh, mention uh, or remind that Czechoslovakia was communist uh, country in the time. We lived in the uh, atmosphere of, uh, let's say, permanent fight between East and West, between capitalism and socialism. It was a bit of paranoia, you know. So almost all the official communication in, in the embassies in that time uh, was uh, somehow encrypted. They used code box for communication uh, between headquarters and, and embassies. So each side has their own uh, code book. And thanks to this code, they were, were able to uh, to read this encrypted in information. So the burglary itself, is there any record of it at your end? Did the Czech authorities know anything about a break-in? To be honest, uh, there is no evidence about any burglary in, in 80s or any time to Czechoslovakian embassy at New Zealand. Despite exhaustive inquiries, Robert has drawn a blank. But I think it's worth to underline uh, that in spite of the fact I cannot find anything in, in the archive, it doesn't mean that something like this didn't happen, because I think there's uh, some possibility that the burglary was professional enough uh, that nobody noticed that something like this happened, or I think there's a still possibility that uh, the diplomats in that time didn't want to have any troubles and just don't, uh, or didn't inform headquarters, I mean the Minister of Foreign Affairs, about such an incident. Either of those scenarios are entirely possible, but what about now? How are the Czech leaders today likely to respond to this news? Certainly such a burglary means a violation, you know, of Vienna Convention of Diplomatic Missions and uh, uh, international agreements and, and stuff like this. So, so from yeah. this point of view, it could still be somehow sensitive. On the other hand, we are different state, we are different regime, no, we are allies. Yeah. I think that, that nobody would seeking for apology and... Um, uh, nobody will be angry. Maybe some old communists, yeah, but not current government. While we'd hoped for corroboration in the Czech Republic, we're not exactly surprised. I mean, if the Czechs had found out, they almost certainly would have used it to embarrass New Zealand and especially Britain. Based on what Jim told John and the cutlery that MI6 sent out as a thank you gift, it seems like the mission went off without a hitch. A successful operation, and a secret one. A story kept within the family. Almost all the senior players we talked to for the series learned about the raid on the Czech embassy from us. They never knew. Not Helen Clark, not Geoffrey Palmer, not even Kit Bennett, who says he worked on the early part of the raid, and not Bruce Ferguson, who went on to head the Defence Force and the GCSB. If it wasn't relevant to anything I was doing at the time, then you don't get briefed on it. That's the way it works? Yep. Because the more people who get to know about it, the less secret it is or the less useful it is because a secret shared is a secret lost. Even amongst the five eyes particularly, we would very willingly share information, very willingly, particularly if it was relevant to anyone. But we wouldn't share necessarily the way we got it. And that was again an important part of intelligence gathering. You share the information but not the method by which you've got it. You won't find any spy revealing the source. Not even Deputy Prime Minister at the time, Geoffrey Palmer, who had been specifically authorised by David Longy to be briefed on SIS matters. He learned about them from us in his law school office in Wellington, about three kilometres from where it happened and about 35 years after the event. It's conducted in the shadows and it's kept there. <laughs> um, so you had never heard about this um, action against the Czech Embassy? No. A joint MI6 and SIS operation? No, I don't know anything about it. Mm. I, I what does that tell us? Well, it tells us that they don't share information to pe with people who don't need to have it. As a journalist, I want it. But this Czech embassy story is, well, it's closer to home, more personal for you. Yeah, it's a big international story for you, isn't it? But for me, it's about those family secrets. What happened in plain sight in front of me? 
what really happened that night in Wadestown and I suppose what it meant for my family. My mum still says she doesn't know and doesn't really want to, I think. But that's the culture and she lived and breathed it. OK, so we've got one last card to play really and that's Ben. Yeah, so let's get to that conversation. And this was your idea to set this up so Ben doesn't have to say anything, just hang up when I get something wrong. And this is from that Watergate film, isn't it? All the President's Men, with Dustin Hoffman playing Carl Bernstein. Look, I'm going to count to ten, all right? If there's any reason we should hold on the story, hang up the phone before I get to ten. If the story's all right, you'll just be on the phone after I get to ten, all right? Hang up, right? That's right. You got it? Yeah. We're straight. All right, I'm going to start counting. Okay? We all right? Yeah. Okay, I'm counting. One, two, three. (laughs) Well, it works in the movies. Let's see if it works in reality. Here's John talking to Ben, running him through what we think we know and waiting for him to hang up if we've got something wrong. So in the mid-1980s, the service mounted an operation against the Czech embassy. It was a joint operation with MI6... It was signed off by Prime Minister David Longy at the time. Uh, it was in Ann Street in Wadestown. The target was a code book. It contained codes used by the Warsaw Pact countries. The code book was in a safe in the embassy. It was successfully copied and returned to the safe. So far as we know, it was undetected. That allowed access to encrypted messages sent between the Warsaw Pact countries. That information was shared with MI6. It was also shared with other Five Eyes partners. The man who I've just referred to as Jim Stewart was part of the team on that operation. You were in charge of the operation from the New Zealand side. One reason that I understand for keeping this operation a secret until now is that New Zealand is concerned about Russia. One other reason that we are concerned, uh, that New Zealand is concerned uh, about is personal safety, potentially, for people in the operation. Uh, the use of the uh, of the codes and the implications, the wider ramifications of that, uh, was of significance in the Cold War. I don't have any more questions. So what are you thinking after that? Well, Ben's breathing pretty heavily, isn't it? I feel like I'm hyperventilating on the inside. It's like, finally, after all this time. So you're feeling pretty good at this point? Yeah, thanks. At this point. Because it wasn't the end of the phone call. Ben actually has something to say. Okay. Just to let you know, we've disguised his voice to protect his identity. What What I can disclose to you is it's in fact... The operation was a complete failure, despite all the efforts we went into it. And the, um, it was, um, the material we're looking for wasn't actually there. Oh. <laughs> well, I wish you'd told me that a bit earlier. <laughs> it's, uh, I think somebody's exaggerated along the line. It was a complete failure. So why is everyone being so secretive about it? It's not the fact that it was um, a failure. It's the fact that we're even bothering uh, to do these operations against uh, that particular country anyway. That's it. We we always kept them secret. Well, it's a very long time on to be keeping it secret. I know. That's life in our business sometimes. Wow. Um, and yet we got the um, cutlery and stuff from... And? From, yeah, right. I mean, I would have thought, because it was, it was 
I thank you for a job well done. No, not at all. Because uh, this is one of those mirrors many, many mirrors just one of many. Um, and it was it was always an exchange like that, the mere fact that we we're doing work together. The actual outcome didn't um, have any bearing on the gifts sometimes. Right. But when I read out that list of questions, and I said that the outcome was of significance for the Cold War, mm. you, didn't, you didn't hang up or anything? No, I didn't. I just wanted to hear what the rest was. I was curious, that was all. Well, um, th- thank you for taking the time to talk to me. Um, I suppose I'm I'm a bit nonplussed now. <laughs> I'm not surprised. I'm sorry, that's uh, that's how it was. And sometimes, I mean, uh, even the people who uh, who relate these stories later on in life, they exaggerate somewhat. But that's uh, the facts in this particular one. So you're saying that when when Jim told me, because I've I've just been through this whole thing with you, you know, the, mm. the, when when Jim told me that that was the target and that they got them, mm-hmm. that that wasn't true. The object was, that was the object of the operation, but uh, when the actual thing came to, we, uh, we found nothing. Very disappointing after weeks and weeks and weeks, but there we are. Right, okay, and... In terms of the the the, the you, you were saying there were lots of other operations like this. Of course. Because I mean I know that Jim went into uh, when it was into embassies from time to time. I mean some of that was just replacing batteries on bugs, but um, right. Okay. Yeah, I get it. It was nice to talk, but uh, you just bear in mind some some people's. Uh, Memories, or it likes to be sort of because of the business, they like to exaggerate sometimes, and uh, this is a classic case, I think. Wow. Well, now that we've had some time to digest that conversation, what do you think about what Ben said? Look, my gut instinct is that what Ben says isn't true, that they did get the codes. I knew Jim for 20 years, and I know he would have said nothing to me rather than lie. So how do you explain the difference, though, between the stories? Well, everything else seems to stack up, doesn't it? Raiding the Czech embassy, the code books, MI6... Maybe the punchline has been garbled in my memory. That's a possibility. But it's also a possibility that the service have opted for damage limitation. Ben's been asked to put us off the scent. And look, there might be any number of reasons for that. Let's go back to Gerald Hensley then. Some six months after our first interview with Gerald Hensley, he agrees to tell us more. Remember the first time he did acknowledge the raid took place, but said he couldn't recall whether or not it was successful. And did they get the books? That I no recollection of. No recollection of at all? No, none at all. Then I rang him again and laid out what we'd heard from Ben. And this time, Jude Hensley told that story differently. Yes, it's a long time ago and... Uh, but I do have fairly clear recollection that it failed, that we didn't get our hands on the books. He goes on to effectively tell the same story that Ben told a series of raids with the Czech Embassy raid as the special one that they had high hopes for. Yes, I can't re- remember a programme as such, but there certainly was more than one attempt. The others uh, were more on the potluck, you know, you might find something, whereas the... Uh, the Czech one was, uh, I think, better informed. Was there a point, Mr Hensley, where there was some consideration of whether to continue with these operations? Yes. Again, my recollection is that we got increasingly nervous. Uh, when I say we, I mean the non-intelligence side. 
of the political repercussions of a um, of a failure or something going badly wrong. Uh, and uh, I think that uh, again, my recollection, such as it is now, was that we were fairly keen to abandon it after. Uh, a few turned up, nothing of any particular use. The risk we felt was outweighed the chance of a return. So that makes two of them saying the raid happened but was a failure, as against your stepdad saying they did get the book. So who do we trust? Yeah, it's that wilderness of mirrors again, isn't it? (sighs) I don't really know what to think, to be honest. You have to say, it's unusual that Gerald Hensley says he can't remember, and then he can, Mm. and that he repeats pretty much exactly the same story that Ben gave us. And also, why did he change his mind and give us the detail at all? I talked to him three times about this, and he said it was very clear the last time I spoke to him, he said he'd give us nothing more. Well, he told me that he was willing to go further because we had done the work. Yeah, when was that ever enough of a reason to give a journalist a state secret? Felt to me like we were being patted on the head. Mm. Remember the story Gerald Hensley himself told us about Levchenko, the KGB major in Japan who'd chat up journalists with a story about how their insights made it into the Kremlin Daily, and it was all a lie in order to cultivate the guy? get him writing the kinds of things that Levchenko wanted. Yeah, but why would they let us know they did do the raid but then lie about whether they'd got the Warsaw Pact codes? Mate, there are plenty of reasons. I, I can think of half a dozen off the top of my head. But the most likely one is that they don't want the Russians to know that that's what they did. Yeah, to put us off the scent. But what do you think? Mm. That's the important thing for me. Because you didn't know, Jim but you have been on this journey and we've done this together and you've heard the different stories. Well, we know the raid happened, right? And in one sense, we got more than what we were hoping for at the start a year ago. There were multiple raids over many years into foreign embassies. Mm. We've confirmed that there was this one special raid. The SIS teamed up with Britain's MI6. We know that. The target was the Czech embassy. The goal was to steal Warsaw Pact codes. All true, we have that. We're left with whether or not the raid was successful. We've got your stepdad's account saying they were, they did get the books. Obviously, we can't go back to Jim. And we've got two people now saying they failed. So... I don't know. If I was, if it, if it was gun to the head staff, if I was forced to choose, I'd say they didn't get the codes. But I can also see why the service might put up a smokescreen here. So to be honest, who knows? Who knows? Yeah. Well, I guess I'm thrashing around with it because it just doesn't pass the sniff test for me. I mean, why wouldn't they tell me that right at the start? They didn't want us to do the story. I would have dropped it. I guess the other big question lingering over all this is, does the SIS still break into embassies today? Well, exactly. Who better to ask than former Prime Minister Helen Clark? Were you ever asked as Prime Minister to sign off on a break into a foreign embassy in New Zealand? I couldn't comment on that. That's still something that must stay secret? Couldn't comment. That sounds like a a yes. (laughs) Well, isn't it neither confirm nor deny? (laughs) (laughs) You've you've learned that lesson well. So it still happens broadly, does it? Who knows? Who knows? Or someone knows, but I guess like all intelligence secrets, it'll be on a need-to-know basis. Here's Gerald Hensley again. Well, it's always important for the truth to come out, but the idea... I mean, intelligence gathering is by its nature both sensitive and secret. It's, it's a fact of life uh, that you cannot, uh, against hostile countries, gather information and then publish it the next morning uh, uh, in your newspaper. Otherwise, you destroy your sources, the people who are talking to you and all the rest of it. So it's always clad in secrecy. And I agree that secrecy may linger on uh, sometimes a bit too long. Uh, But I don't think it's a question of the truth being suppressed. Uh, 
it may be that the, the full detail of the truth is not coming out. And I agree with you as a historian, I would like and think in the end that must, that must happen. So we've been working on this for the best part of a year and I still don't know exactly what happened. I like to think that Jim and his team did win the World Cup of Espionage. They just weren't allowed to tell anyone. Gerald Hensley told us that one of the problems with intelligence is that failure is everywhere, but success, when it happens, is a secret buried in the files. Jim lived with that. Mum does now. So I guess I'll have to. Service is made by RNZ and Bird of Paradise Productions with support from New Zealand On Air. It's hosted and produced by Guy and Espiner and me, John Daniel, with additional reporting by Robert Breston. Our sound engineers are Adrian Holai and Rangi Powak. Our producer is William Ray. Thanks to Nga Taonga for the archival audio and to Anthony Tonin for the original music throughout the series. The executive producers for RNZ are Tim Watkin and Veronica Schmidt.